0: Welcome to Wavemaker Conversations. I'm your host, Michael Schulder. My guest is my former colleague from CNN, the inspired science correspondent, Miles O'Brien. I'm speaking to you the day after Letterman. And that's the sense you got this week. We're measuring time B.L. before Letterman and A.L. after Letterman. And there's nothing I can really add to what's already been said. His final shows speak for themselves but one thing that caught my eye that I wanted to share with you in case you missed it is this. The New York Times relayed an anecdote from Jerry Seinfeld. Shortly after Seinfeld signed the deal with NBC to get his sitcom, he went up to Letterman and asked for advice. And Letterman told him this. Just make sure if you fail, you did what you wanted to do. Enough said. On to my guest. Many of you who have followed Miles O'Brien over the years at CNN and now at PBS know about the freak accident he had last year, which led to the amputation of his left arm. He barely paused, got right back to work. The conversation you're about to hear took place not long after that accident, before an audience of leading conservationists, directors of the Organization of Biological Field Stations. Their leader, oceanographer Sarah Oktai, who introduces us, describes the international network of well over 250 field stations as the NASA of the Earth. They gathered for this conversation on the Massachusetts island of Nantucket.
1: Now, for the, one of the most exciting parts of the evening, we're going to have Michael Shoulder and Miles O'Brien come up, and they are going to do a conversation that talks about how important science is and some of the things that they see proceeding in our life.
0: Sarah, thank you. I'm going to be bringing. Myles. First of all, what do you mean by one of the most important parts of the evening? So listen, I'm I'm here to introduce Miles O'Brien. So let me, without further ado, introduce Miles O'Brien. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. I haven't seen you in a while. Yes. Uh, a little bit's changed since the last time I worked Anything with... new, Miles? Is that well, what you're gonna say? Something's missing. I don't <laughs> know what it is, but, but tell us about, uh, before you tell us the space story, tell us what happened here.
1: Well, you know, it's interesting. I was uh, on a reporting trip to the Far East, and it, uh, my itinerary was Japan and the Philippines, and my main mission in Japan was to go to the Fukushima Daiichi reactors for a story for the PBS NewsHour. And, um, you know, for years and years, I've always talked to people about how they misperceive risks. Uh, people get worried about getting on an airliner when they don't, don't think twice about driving down the highway. Obviously, much riskier to do the highway thing. People worry about nuclear power plants when, in fact, statistically, they're not as risky as coal is. And so I assumed my risk on this trip was going to Fukushima. And sure enough, it turned out to be a heavy equipment case that uh, left me in a bad way and took my arm. So it was uh, a bit of an adjustment, to say the least. Uh, for people
0: who don't know the story, though, I mean, it, it's, it's a bizarre thing, but this heavy equipment, and by the way, as soon as I heard this story, I thought, you know, the economics of TV journalism are changing. Mm-hmm. The fact that you, a reporter, were the one who was reaching for the heavy camera case, I think is partly a result of the economics are one man, one woman can do the whole job. Were you shooting your own story?
1: Yeah, I was. I actually enjoyed doing that, and I, you know, I hired local fixers and translators and drivers and so forth. But the, I was my own director of photography, and uh, would you know get my local people to get me in the, the shot a little bit for the story's sake. And uh, you know, I when you when you do the math on a, a trip like that, uh, the budgets are tight and. Uh, you had to be versatile, and I enjoyed doing it, so I, I was there as a one man band. And, and, just, and just in a nutshell, so this heavy camera case fell on your arm, and what happened? Well, it was just this fluke thing, which um, I ended up, you know, I didn't know it existed. It's called acute compartment syndrome. And basically, it was, uh, you know, an impact injury to my arm. It just seemed like a bruise. And like two days later, it was this horrible agony, and uh, blood flow was blocked, and I had to have emergency surgery, and it didn't go so well. So, there you have it, you, know, you, you think is the risk and it's the heavy equipment case, you just never know.
0: And when I first heard it happen to you, I said, well you are one of the most actually resilient reporters I've ever known. It's like wherever you go, you always have delivered. And then I read, not long after this, you were what, 10 feet under the surface of the
1: ice? Yeah, I, uh, my first big assignment, Was to uh, you know? I I, I might be crazy, but you know, you just got to dive back in in life. That's my theory in the whole thing. Just kind of you know, full. When when you're going through hell, keep going, as Winston Churchill said. So, I kept going, and my first big assignment was to fly onto the glacier at the Denali National Park on an airplane outfitted with skis. And uh, I wasn't alone on this trip. I had a a producer with me, and uh, producer. Shooter, we, we work as a team. We've worked for 20 years together. And we're camping on the ice sheet for four days with scientists who are pulling radar devices, ground penetrating radar devices, through the, across the ice sheet on snowshoes and skis, because you can't use uh, snow machines or anything in the Denali park, to try to measure the thickness of the glacier. It's, it's an unknown. We really don't know how the glaciers in these mountain areas are not well studied. And the idea of going up there on my first shoot You know, new new tape being one arm was was a bit daunting. But my my friend and colleague Kate Tobin said, "You need to go." I I said, "You know, you can obviously get somebody else if you'd like." And and she said, "You know, you know, Miles, you need to go on this trip, and you know, I've I've got you covered. Don't worry, it's going to be okay." And it worked out. And, And
0: and you were literally from the account I read. Was it 10 feet? Yeah, no. So,
1: so what what they do is this. This was the moment where I thought maybe I really had lost my marbles. But every now and then they have to dig about a 12 foot pit to sort of calibrate the radar, ground truth of the radar. So you know to make sure that all the readings they're getting are borne out by the actual layers in the ice. So they dug this 12 foot pit, and they're down there, you know, looking at it, and and I, you know, we I had to get the shot. So. uh, It was kind of interesting. So I, I ended up laying down like SEAL Team Six with one arm. It was, I had the pictures to prove it. I actually, I actually survived it. But then I thought, this is crazy. Afterwards. Afterwards after yeah. I did
0: it, yes. <laughs> and, and so now going back, so clearly you've got this adventurous spirit. And, and by the way, us parents in the audience, I'm going to find out where the adventurous spirit came from because we, we need to find out so we can inc- yeah. inculcate our kids. Yeah, with that. So, yeah. so here's the question. So now let's go back. I mentioned the space program, you're a a pilot. I mentioned to a few people here that you offered many times to fly me to Mantucket in your Cessna plane, which you assured me was safe because the plane itself had a parachute. Yeah. And I never took you up on the offer. You still didn't want to do
1: it. I apologize. And what about now? Not so
0: much, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so this love of piloting, you yes. know, you're not just interested in science on Earth, you're interested. How did you get
1: involved in the space program, and how close did you come to getting into space? Well, uh, how I got involved in the space program was the strange story of me becoming the science correspondent at CNN. As a history major from Georgetown, I was completely unqualified to do the job, but I got that job. Um, and it was very interesting, because I had heard that CNN was looking for a science correspondent position. And this was what year? This is 1992. CNN was absolutely at its pinnacle. They, they had the first Gulf War, and they, they had emerged from their chicken noodle news days. There was no Fox News, and Ted was running the place. And you'd know, see him every morning in his bathrobe and slippers. It was, th- these were good days. And so anyway, they called me down. I, managed to f- I was actually working in Boston at Channel 7. And, uh, Later, the Christian Science Monitor channel, short-lived operation. And I heard that CNN was looking for a science correspondent. And I I didn't know anything about science, but I knew CNN would be a good place to work. And so I managed to convince them to bring me down for an interview. It turned out to be a two-day interview with Bailey Beresh, who was the editor, the the first time and long time science editor at CNN. She was a former molecular biologist. She actually knew science. And so she brought me down, and I did the usual things, you know, read in front of the camera, and they sent me out on a story, and I had to do a story. But she also gave me a, a written and an oral exam on science, which I flunked miserably. I mean, miserable. I mean, I was had been chasing bodies in Roxbury for a living, you know. I mean, this, and I knew not, you know, They asked me what climate change was, and I, I said it's when you do the thermostat in the room. I, <laughs> I, I really didn't know what it was. I, I honestly was clueless. So, at the end of this whole process, two-day, you know, gauntlet, I get to the president of CNN, Bob Fernand, and he's at his desk, and he's kind of looking at my report, my folder there, and he doesn't even look up at me. He goes, well, obviously you don't know shit about science, and so, so I said, that's why you want to hire me, and um, which I thought was kind of a stretch at the time, but it's actually true, because as you well know, when you're trying to reach the CNN audience, they're not scientists. They're, they're people who are presumably curious about the world, and so my goal, what I discovered my goal and my mission was, was to be in between the world of science and the rest of the, the, rest of the world. And um, that's a good place to be, actually. There's not a lot of people who dare do it, because the newsroom, as you well know, is filled with a lot of science-phobics. Anyway, you asked me about NASA. As, as I became the science correspondent and became more well-versed, I was already a pilot, I was a third generation general aviation pilot. Both of my uh, grandfathers were pilots, and, uh, and my father. And I grew up you know, learning how to fly, just sitting beside him in the right seat of small airplanes. So I loved it. And so when I had the science job, I naturally moved into the NASA beat as much as I could, because that was a natural area of interest. And eventually, uh, what happened was I, you know, my predecessor, John Holloman in the Space Beat, who some of you may remember on CNN, who tragically died uh, right before uh, John Glenn was to fly in the shuttle in 1998, he had covered the space beat. And he had tried to um, cook up a deal with the Russians to go to space, and it never worked out. So after uh, we lost him, uh, I picked up the baton and for three years negotiated with NASA and the Russians, making NASA believe that it would have flown with the Russians. And we actually had a deal on the morning that Columbia was to arrive on that fateful day in February of uh, 2003, uh, I actually had a deal which we were going to announce about 10 days after it would have landed safely. And of course, when we lost uh, the orbiter and the crew, that was the end of that idea, so.
0: So you sort of stumbled into this science job. You you, you weren't, you, you didn't have this mission in life. And you saw the opportunity and you took it. How did it start off? What were, the, what were the early science stories you did that to this day maybe still
1: resonate with you? Well, you know, I, I quickly realized how, um, first of all, it was, it's kind of virgin turf. There's not a lot of mainstream media going into labs and, and scientists really don't like us coming into their labs very much because there's a lot of distrust. There's an assumption that you're just gonna simplify and dumb it down and do all these things. And most scientists, are kind of you know an inch wide and 500 miles deep. And, and I'm the ultimate 500 miles wide an inch deep guy, right? So we, we just come from a different uh, mindset. And, and the concern is that you come in, and you kind of do this drive-by in this lab, and you just completely botch and ruin a person's life work and put it on CNN and get it wrong. So there was a lot of distrust and concern and, frankly, nervousness when I met a lot of these scientists. And plus, on top of that, a lot of them open their mouth and you have no idea what they're talking about. They just really don't, you know, when, Present company when, when excluded. you know, when you meet somebody like Sarah who has that gift, I mean actually the people who are involved in these field stations, by the ver- the very, uh, their mission is to communicate. So they, they are forced to do it and so they're good at it. But a lot of scientists, frankly, you know, we, we, you know those of us who become history majors, we go this way and the scientists go that way. and. We don't learn much about science, and they don't learn much about, you know, communicating with the public, and that's part of the problem. So, I remember going in early on. I went into, uh, I was, I was going down to Tifton, Georgia, of all places. I was doing a story on hybrid grass. These were the days when CNN indulged itself in really esoteric science stuff, but it was actually an interesting story. You know, grass you wouldn't have to fertilize as much, which is of great interest to, to this day. And I walked in, and this this scientist he he had beads of perspiration, and his eyes were like saucers, and he was just you know shaking, and you know he was wearing a tie which he obviously never had worn before, and you know the, the the lab was just immaculate, you know like nobody had ever worked there, you know, and and so you know I was trying to ease you know make him feel at ease and so forth, and talk about his work, and so I said, well, why don't we do the interview first, and we'll do it over here, and he said. Well, that's great, OK, because um, I'm wondering where I should set up the cue cards. He had written out an entire script, my questions, his answers, and he had cue cards. Like, as he said at the time, this is a few years ago, he said, well, Johnny Carson does it, doesn't he? I mean, don't you do that? And I said, no, we don't use cue cards. But he was so nervous about saying the wrong thing and and me messing up his story that he wanted to control the interview and script it. So. That's an extreme example, but that's a lot of what you run into. Now, over the years, I have learned um, how to you know, bridge that gap better and better, but it's, it, it can be a difficult um, union.
0: More of my conversation with Miles O'Brien in a minute, including his reflection on what in his childhood helped make him so resilient as an adult. First, I want to welcome Wavemaker Conversation sponsor, Harry's.com. Oh, yes, Wavemaker has sponsors. They want the Wavemaker audience curious, educated, influencers, well-groomed. At least that's the way I imagine you. Harry's is a purveyor of high-end razors and other shaving supplies ordered online, delivered to your mailbox. No waiting in line at the drugstore. WaveMaker's listeners can go to harrys.com, order a starter kit for $15, put in the discount code WaveMaker, and get $5 off. That's harrys.com, discount code WaveMaker, $5 off. If you love Harry's, then you can put in an order for automatic refills. Never think about it again. You're listening to WaveMaker Conversations. I'm your host, Michael Schulder.
1: to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
0: Back to my conversation with Miles O'Brien from our appearance before leading conservationists, directors of the Organization of Biological Field Stations, the NASA of the Earth. So what have have you learned lately? And and, clearly, like what the the field directors that we have spoken to over the past couple of days, I mean, you guys are Incredible communicators, which is why I think this mission is so important because that's built into the mission of these field stations Is the communication not only to people like you and me, but to the younger generation? Give me one of the most captivating things you've learned about science that needs to be spread out there because we might not have seen your story on it
1: Well, all right, so I should just say I had the good fortune to take a tour today with Lenny and um, I was the oldest eight-year-old there and um, it was magical. And every kid should have this opportunity. I don't know which of those kids someday may or may not become a scientist, but at least they've, they've had that experience. They've had uh, you know, the, the sense of wonder and, and the, just the, the observational powers that he shared with them. Walking through what just seems like a marsh and what this all means and why that's endangered and why that's important and, and how it all fits together. And to me, that's such an important part of the whole recipe for how we treat science in this country. We've kind of had, I think over the years, and I think we've taken for granted this kind of bouillabaisse that we have that, is, that creates great success in our country. It's been founded on great primary education, wonderful universities. There was many years when a lot of corporations invested serious money on long-term basic research. The federal government was involved in basic research and funding it in a meaningful way. Each of those things I just mentioned to you right now are under siege. Primary education, engaging kids in science, is in a terrible state right now because the way kids are taught, the way they're taught to exams, they're they're not inspired like Lenny would inspire them. Universities are pricing themselves out of business. Kids in high school are not engaged in science in, in a meaningful way like we should. We're not generating scientists and engineers like, like we used to. Corporations don't spend money. There's no more Bell Labs, those kinds of things where, in trying to figure out why AM radio was so staticky, they discovered the Big Bang, cosmic background radiation. Things like that don't exist anymore. National Institutes of Health, all National Science Foundation, all those budgets are just getting hammered. And scientists are absolutely under siege every step of the way. And it's, it's so interesting because I was just recently in China. My son was over there for a semester, and I got a chance to visit him. And I was poking around with some story ideas. And they are just desperate, desperate to figure out what we have here, what we've done to, to create the long-running scientific and technological success that we've had. And they're systematically trying to do it. They're trying to recreate our little base. I would submit to you, though, they can't do it, because we have we have secret sauce here. There's something about you know, the American spirit and the way Americans approach problems which they'll never be able to copy in China. And so... G- g- let me stop you right yeah. there.
0: Give me an example of a story where you felt you captured that secret sauce of the American spirit that led to a fascinating science story.
1: Well, it's actually gonna air tomorrow on the PBS NewsHour. So I invite you to watch this piece. I- I, was, I, just, um, I just did a piece, I, it was actually, speaking of Bell Labs, the um, Howard Hughes Medical Institute, which is a very well endowed research institution, obviously deep pockets there, uh, has built a facility, it's now uh, seven or eight years old, outside of Washington, called the Genelia uh, Farm Research Facility. I don't know if anybody's heard of this thing, but it's, it's like a latter day version of Bell Labs, except it's funded by a, a well endowed foundation. And what they do there is there's, they, they bring the best and brightest scientists in the realm of neuroscience in there. They don't grant tenure, but they also don't require them to get on the mill of publishing, you know, publish or perish, which is, you talk to most scientists, they'll tell you if they're really doing well, they spend maybe 30 or 40 percent of their time doing science. Most of the time, they're chasing meager amounts of funding, trying to, you know, Keep it alive, short term goals, stuff that has direct applications. It's actually very short term science. There are very few people sitting down and thinking about big questions, which might take 10 years to solve. And that's exactly what they built there. They have 400 scientists at various levels that are doing science with basically a blank check and with no, you know, as long as they're progressing, no requirement that they come up with any discovery ever. But with questions that they figure will take 10 or 15 years to
0: come up with an answer. So, give me the what, what's the best question they're asking right now that requires a blank check? Well, I love it. by the way, blank checks are like my favorite thing. But
1: I love blank checks. Yeah, these guys, these guys, they, they have traded their tenured positions. Tenured, you know, I mean, that's a, that's a big thing to walk away from. Tenured positions to come there. And they, they're renewed every five years. They, come, they have to so come one, up. So one question that they're asking now that's a pressing question that you can't wait to hear the answer. I, they, they are, one, we went to one lab where this guy is He's fascinated by dragonflies. Okay, so the reason he's interested in dragonflies, he's interested in how we, our brain, is able to throw a ball and catch it. If you think about what it takes to do that, the neurons that fire, the intent, the aim, how the muscles are connected, we we don't know how this works. And so what he's done is, he's working with the engineers there, he actually has built little backpacks that go on dragonflies. And as they fly to catch fruit flies, they send out telemetry that's wired into their neurons. And he can see their neurons firing as they see the fruit fly come and they go get it. And eventually, this will give us incredible insights into how our brains operate and how it connects to our bodies. We, they're actually making movies of neurons evolving. I mean, it's not just like a still slide in a microscope. They, they, they built microscopes there that can actually capture movies of the development of, and watching neurons operate as they're going in, in fruit flies and in, in zebrafish. It's extraordinary. But they, they don't know exactly where it's going to lead yet. And that's precisely the point. This is, this is all about the serendipity of science. So
0: now let me ask you about the serendipity of, of journalism and science because because of budgetary constraints, it's very hard for a guy like you to go out on a story where you don't know what the ending's going to be or you right. don't know what the big image is going to be. When you went out on this story or other stories, how does risk play into this? Risk in terms of, boy, oh, he came back and he didn't get the goods. And you know, we, we know that every great endeavor... Right. You don't know if, you're, if the goods are going to come through in the end. Yeah, no. So, that's... so how do you deal with that? And did that come from, by the way, uh, trace that to childhood if you can? Because there, there is a certain appetite for taking risk where you don't know the outcome. That is necessary for great work, and not all people have the stomach for it.
1: Uh, that, that's a that's a really that's a thought-provoking question, Michael. Very good. That's good. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, nothing ventured, nothing gained. All that stuff, but it is true that that process of kind of, because you, you can get on the phone with a scientist all day. You can Google. You can pre-interview. You can do all these things. But you're still going to find the guy. You walk into the lab, and he's got the cue cards ready, right? And what do you do in that situation? How do you deal with that? I didn't have the luxury at CNN, or for that matter at the news hour where I now get paid per piece to ab- abandon the project. You keep going. And so, you know, some of it you fix in post, and uh, some of it you have to drop back and think about new ways to do it. Sometimes you have to add an extra interview. I can't think of many stories that I have just completely abandoned. There've been a few, but uh, you know, I think it's so worth it when you take that chance and you try to meet a scientist halfway in a challenging story. Another story I did recently was on the hunt for dark matter. So imagine trying to do a television story on dark matter, something that, number one, hasn't been discovered. And even if it had been, there's no pictures, right? So this is like a lot of what you have to do is think about, okay, I want to tell this story on television. I don't have a budget to create full-scale animations for uh, my 10-minute news hour piece. And so what you have to do is you have to find that you become a part of the process, and you take people on the journey. So as it turns out. The best place to look for dark matter and, and tiny little particles like this is deep underground in mines. So there's an abandoned nickel mine, in, or it's actually an active nickel mine, but they have an abandoned side of it in Sudbury, Ontario. You go down two miles underground, and that's the best place to try to capture dark matter. Do you, by the way, do you see the pattern in this man's life? <laughs> 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 And you go down there and they have these most amazing Jules Verne like tanks and stuff with all this amazing esoteric materials have presumably will identify the collision between a little piece of dark matter and another atom of some kind. Obviously you're not gonna see the dark matter, but this process is fascinating. That was a risk. I mean I'm going up to Sudbury, Ontario in the middle of the winter, two miles down, and I really wasn't sure what I was gonna get. But I figured I had a good shot, and then there was always the place in North Dakota to fall back on if it was a complete bust. It turned out to be a great story, though. Two, two last questions, actually one
0: from me and one I want you to ask. Okay. For the yeah. last week. Just as a parent, I always want to know, what was the influence in your life that gave you the resilience? And the spirit of adventure that you clearly have—how did that evolve? I, I,
1: I'm a product of great dysfunction, <laughs> and it, were, it works. Is that right? Yeah, no. In what way? I, you know, I, my, my parents were—you know—it was—it was it a—I've was called it boozy dysfunction, uh, and it was—it was—it was a household where I had to be pretty reliant, quite frankly, on my own. And I think that you know, sometimes we learn by negative examples, and that's—that's that's the truth in my case. I tried to be a little more of a positive example for my kids. Well, I, I just want to say to my wife, let's have a few drinks tonight.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, uh, before we end it then, that's very interesting to me, uh, because it, it is unbelievable how, how kids can thrive despite adversity, maybe sometimes because of adversity in childhood. I would like to close by letting you ask a question in searching for some breaking news that might be buried okay, in the Okay, so I,
1: I always ask this when I have an opportunity of scientists. So what, in the scientists in the room, and for that matter those who have, are interested in science, what do you think is the most important science story that is least covered in the mainstream media right now? What is happening right now? Is it, you know, I mean, for years and years it was, it was always something to do with climate change, you know, and, I, you know, I've pushed on that for many years at CNN and now PBS. It's still hard, frankly, it's hard to get those stories on the air. Although I thought the Denali Glacier was a great story. It should be something that people like. But so what's what are the stories that we're missing? Yes? The story that I my research by is the
0: availability and distribution of fresh water around the world. I think that's a great story. Yeah, yeah. for those who yeah. missed that, the availability and distribution of fresh water
1: around the world. Yeah. Sarah Un- and, and you know we oh, think sorry. there's is it a, a billion people don't have access to fresh water? Is that isn't it something along those lines, I believe? And that's an extraordinary Thing sitting here in this wonderful island and all the privileges around us, that there are people who can't get a fresh drink of water, in this planet. Why is that? Anyway, my follow-up to that would yeah. be the, the type of damage we do do to freshwater ponds, even on an island like with without watching our the septic system. Harmful algae produce. Yeah.
0: And, wow. and so, so there were two stories so far that I'm while they, this. Yeah. Yeah. Can, can I suggest something? Two yeah. stories, there's a pattern here. They're of global importance, but they're very local stories and can All be addressed right. locally, right? Yeah. In a lot of localities. Tom Quigley, you have one question. The thing I think about is the asteroid that we cannot detect, this planet, but changes
1: for We could get cold cocked. That's true, <laughs> that is true,
0: yeah. And this gets to that issue of resilience, whether in individuals or on the Earth. How resilient is the Earth? And it's an experiment. We don't know it. Well, I mean, look
1: at how we build our society. We, we, you know, we've had, um, up until very recently, a stable climate for thousands and thousands of years. You know? and we've built a society that is finely tuned to this climate that we are, we've been used to for so long. We've built right to the edge of it, you know, literally to the edge of it on barrier islands. And you see some of the evidence right here on this island. Which Sarah told me a little bit about, and um, so the truth is, it's changing now. It's happening right now. I mean, look what happened with Hurricane Sandy. You know, if that isn't a wake-up call, when the you know the New York City, City subways flood, and a place like Broad Channel is just completely inundated, we have built a society which is it's really, frankly, very fragile and not resilient to the climate. It, it, the question is, will the human beings realize that soon enough? Miles O'Brien. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you.